Someone grab my tunic. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little... In this scene, I will be bare-chested. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life... Welcome one and all to the first 2018 edition of your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast, Be Real. My name is Chance Solemn-Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Happy New Year to you, buddy. Happy New Year to you. It's, How uh, you doing? I'm doing great. You just heard our new little uh, intro song. You're going to hear some new segments on this show. Of course, unless you didn't hear our intro song, that means uh, we couldn't agree on the, the cut for it. <laughs> but God knows, hopefully it goes well. Um... Yeah, you're going to hear New Leaf, a few new things for us, uh, same old powerhouse Daniel Day-Lewis performances. But are they? We're going to be talking about Phantom Thread, allegedly the uh, all-time great film actor's last film. We'll see if that retirement sticks. Uh, And then we dove back a little bit into his filmography. How did we decide, Noah, on Last of the Mohicans and Gangs of New York? I think each one is from a decade, so... Last of the Mohicans is 90s, Gangs of New York is 2000s, and here now we are in the middle of the 2010s, and and also he doesn't work very often. He takes years off between projects, so there's not like a whole lot to pick from. That's right. Well, and can we talk about some of the like the appeal factors of Daniel Day Lewis and like why he is the way he is and why it sort of works? Definitely. Do we have anything we have to say about ourselves first, or should we keep this to a a Daniel Day-Lewis podcast. I mean, I feel like in talking about the raw magnetism of Daniel Day-Lewis, um, I may whatever show, you're about a, to say, stop. <laughs> show a little bit of myself there. Um, Great. DDL has a mystique by virtue of the fact that he's only chosen to do prestige pictures and takes three to five years off and in this century has worked with, I think, only his wife, Rebecca Miller, Martin Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Steven Spielberg. Is that right? Oh, and whoever directed that sort of nine, rounds it out. Whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, so part of his method acting necessitates him taking time to prepare for these roles. But I think that his batting average and his shot selection, to use a, to mix sports metaphors, is such that people see him being so intentional and so invested that. If he has weird swings, people don't remember them. They remember a great man who plays great men. Not morally great men, but um, men of some standing. You know, when actors get in sort of like ruts of like, huh, that earned me a supporting actor nomination. I'm just going to do that for the rest of my career. Sure, sure. Like he never got there and he's willing to like just swing with all his might. And you come for that, I think. And, you know, he doesn't have that movie star thing of like, I'm just going to be Tom Hanks. Because if he was just like, I'm just going to be Daniel Day-Lewis in this role, what would that even look like? Who is Daniel Day-Lewis? Yeah, unclear. But I tell you who Daniel Day-Lewis is, is I think one of the more undersung Hollywood, like handsome guys. Yes. He is like unbelievable. Like that's what I noticed this week watching three Daniel Day-Lewis movies back to back to back is that like you can't take your eyes off him a, because he's, like, doing something weird, and B, because, like, he's so good-looking. Right. Like, in every stage of his career, he's been a good-looking version of that time. 
we're going to start with uh, Phantom Thread, which has been out in New York and L.A. for a couple of weeks. If you live in, uh, you know, Portland or, or elsewhere, that's not New York or L.A. Uh, I think it comes out, what, like Friday the 12th or something. I hope I hope it gets to you soon because we've got a lot to say about it. And it's a, a very thought provoking film. Um, what is it? The eighth film from Paul Thomas Anderson, his second collaboration with uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, should I synopsize or do you want to? I can do it. Do it up. Um, so we follow Reynolds Woodcock, who's, that's an incredible name. We'll, we'll just start there. Yeah. Um, and he's like this well-to-do British fashion designer in the 1950s. And he's in sort of this cyclical life where he finds a muse. He sucks the marrow emotionally out of these women in order to create these fabulous dresses for the wealthy and privileged uh, in London and across Europe. And then when he's done with that particular project, he gets rid of that woman and finds someone new. Mm -hmm. But after a chance, like running with this Eastern European waitress, um, I think she's Belgian. Yeah. Well, there's, cause there's that joke about her about like, is that what they do in her Eastern like culture or something? Mm, Okay. Whatever. He runs into this waitress and they start a love affair, but she sort of breaks the mold of the women he usually involves himself with, which threatens to either make him the best version of himself or the worst, I would say. Interesting. Yeah. And you see it unfold there. And then by some interesting trickeration on behalf of Paul Thomas Anderson, the movie sort of flips back on itself in a very like, was fates and furies kind of way. That's well put. I think that one of the things that the trailer sets up an expectation for is that it will be like a beautiful relationship turned frightening, almost in the mode of like one of the erotic thrillers that we talked about or something on a, on a prior podcast. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stuff that is in the trailer seems to depict like the frightening fall of their relationship is sprinkled throughout. It's a movie about like how a relationship like threatens itself and survives and power reverses and reverses back and compromise. It's like it's very not, you know, it's not a climb the mountain, fall off the mountain movie. No, it's a quietly simmering picture. (laughs) It's true. I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. Things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true. And I have given him what he desires most in return. <laughs> Every piece of me. So should we talk about Daniel Day-Lewis? What do you want to say about him other than he's like a very dashing, cool older man? That's about exactly what I was going to say. I think that... So I don't know... The, the setup for this movie feels very familiar, right? Like a work-obsessed genius and an ingenue. Um, and right. Like, what will happen? And will she make him better at what he does? Will he grow a heart? But those expectations are so quickly... I don't, I don't want to say subverted, but like just overwhelmed by the intimacy and the angles that this relationship takes on. And it goes so far inside the dynamics um, that Daniel Day-Lewis is very dashing, yes, but he's also um, 
childish and occasionally foolish in a way that you've never seen him before. Um, he kind of humbles himself a few different times. Right. You know what I'm saying? No, and I think it's easy to say that like he humbled himself in other films, but I think in this movie he gets to like an emotional level that speaks to like what it means to like get old, but also still like have a childishness to you because you've been so sort of like, you know, cocooned almost like by your position. And I think it's a very interesting time to see a male role like in this very sort of like abusive, but not, violent kind of way with people. Yeah. At this, yeah, at this juncture in our lives. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. And I just like the idea too, that this movie kind of puts forward that any sort of person who's naive enough to be a reclusive genius must be sort of like immature in a way. And that's kind of what this movie puts forward about his relationship with his sister. Like he keeps saying like, I'm a confirmed bachelor, but so is his sister. Um, and they right. learn this trade from their, their mom, their late mother, who he misses very dearly. Um, and who sort of like passed along the, um, the pieces of like this curse about wedding dresses that the movie kind of unpacks. But you get the sense that like, you know, he and his sister's dynamic and like how they've stood up for each other and backed off from each other is just the same as it's been for 50 years. Right. Longer. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how, because ultimately if you unravel it a little bit and it, not to overly simplify it, but it's sort of a love triangle movie. In a way. Yeah. In a way between Daniel Day-Lewis facing his sister, Cyril. What a great name. Great name. Um, and Alma, the the new muse who goes a little bit too far because like she's abided muses before Cyril, right. and she like knows how to get rid of them. And getting rid of them is like giving them the uh, unused dresses uh-huh. that like linger around the estate. Um, but yeah, it's but then like the machine starts to break down, and I think the way it does it is so both fascinating and done with such an elegance that. This is a, could easily be like such a boring like BBC movie yes. that like my parents watch and I like make a you know, masturbating gesture like when they ask if I want to join, but it's not. And what makes it not for you? Because we, we can back up and say that you've been telling me all week that you love this movie and it might be your favorite PTA movie, if you don't mind me throwing that out there. It's definitely my favorite PTA movie and you know, not to tip my hand too quickly, but I do think it's definitely my favorite movie of uh, 2017 as well. Wow. I, I love it. So Well, and it's funny because I'm the one who adores PTA and you're the one right. who's always kind of like, what are you doing here, guy? Um, I think he's a little silly at moments. Yeah. Or just a little uh, illegible. He's Yeah. Uh-huh. I think that's fair. And I think some of the, I think what's interesting about him working with Daniel Day Lewis is like, neither of them give a shit what the other is doing. I don't think. How, how do you see that? Cause like it almost like the way that there will be blood is shot compared to like, 
what Daniel Day-Lewis is doing physically. And there's even some interesting close-up shots in Phantom Thread where it almost looks like Daniel Day-Lewis like doesn't even like the shot that PTA has chosen. And he sort of just like moves around it like as his, at his sort of, and obscures himself. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just like the seamless interweaving of two professional artists, but it almost looks like a struggle, which makes the film more interesting to watch. That's interesting. Um, and I, like, didn't the, the car scenes almost feel like Daniel Day Lewis was driving like almost too fast, and like it, he made the like the truck behind him like drive faster than maybe they wanted to. <laughs> I like that read. Sure, because like it's bumpy and it's like not like the smooth like Paul Thomas Anderson canvas that we're used to, and it's almost like God damn it, Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> when you said you wanted to do the stunts, like we didn't mean for you to drive like a ninety down this windy road. Like let us follow you and speed it up in post production. Yeah, one hundred ten <laughs> kilometers per hour. Um, <laughs> I only drive fast. <laughs> um, let's see. And in PTA's filmography, I like what this movie says because i think i'm painting with a broad brush here but paul thomas anderson movies are usually about people who either want very badly to be in love or people who have an insatiable sense of wanting and whether for money or power or acclaim and most of the time those two things you know slam up against each other and love uh loses quite often (laughs) in like there will be blood and the master and boogie nights and magnolia in like six of the eight plot lines um sure but in this one he's weirdly found a way to make love and greed mingle in such a way that they can coexist i think i feel like it's the perfect um amalgam of the stuff that pta has been playing with for 20 years now well, I think it ends on such a positive note, too, that it's hard to be like, ugh. You know, like some PTA, I like, I just, I don't know. I just feel kind of like icky afterwards because it's like the first time I saw There Will Be Blood, it's like, well, I guess like from the title, I should have known that like it was going to end horribly violent. There's always some act of violence, like at the end of his movies. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the frogs coming down in Magnolia or Paul Dano being beaten to death by a, a, a bowling pin or whatever. Sure. Uh, there's something, and this movie has its moment of violence too, and it's the eating of a mushroom omelet, uh-huh. which is totally ridiculous. Um, and I think pretty spoiler free. Um, yeah. But I, I just love what they're, what the movie says about. Daniel Day Lewis and his like style of performing in general. I'm trying to write a thing about this, but I feel like the common thread of Daniel Day Lewis performances, even though he doesn't appear to be in there anywhere, the work is always in there. And he's has all these movies about these experts who use the physical tools at their disposal, whether it's knives or guns or pickaxes or oil wells or presidential anecdotes. And they use those tools until they can't use them anymore. And this is sort of a movie about how, like, you might be the best tailor in the world, but, like, is that really what makes you, you? And at the end of the day, don't you have to set those things aside in order to uh, push off what you feel the movie says is a sour heart coming on? I feel like this is an interesting, if it is indeed the last film of Daniel Day-Lewis's career, it's a fascinating grace note. 
No, I would agree. I, I don't. I think he'll have like a, some dumb movie that he does in like five years. Okay. And he'll be like, I've been retiring from like working a lot. <laughs> but this project spoke to me in such a way that I had to return. He's, he strikes me as a very like old school sort of actor in that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting final note. And I think sort of a, it has nice enough closure to it that it's almost, yeah, it's almost too perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get like some weird book of poetry in like 2029 or something. Sure. Um, we should talk about Vicky Crapes because sure. She is inseparable from this movie. And because I had, don't think I'd ever seen her before. Um, this character feels like inseparable from her mannerisms. I mean, but that's PTA though. In any Paul Thomas Anderson, I don't watch Paul Thomas Anderson movies and think like, well, that performance was good from a static words on the page thing. And that one was, he didn't do a good job of saying the words on the page. He's, there's very seldom a seam for me between the characters played and the actors. Right. Yeah, and I think she's beautifully cast both because she is un an unknown and also because she's a good actor. Right. Um, in that she's able, maybe because she doesn't have any ego about it, to like go blow for blow with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is what you have to do in a Daniel Day-Lewis movie, but also like a, I think a movie like this. Like you need something as big as an exploding oil well uh -huh. to match Daniel Day-Lewis's physicality. And she's able to do that without moving, which is hilarious. Right. Or, or it's like change the rules of the game. I mean, the one, right. probably the climactic scene of the movie is where she tries to make him dinner. Right. And his and his sister, played by Leslie Manville, in her like incredible, also very still skeptical way, is like, I can't advise that you do that, but go ahead. <laughs> and of course, it goes horribly, and she like makes his asparagus with butter and not oil, and he gets into this whole thing um, that climaxes with him saying like. She's like, you're always playing games, you're always playing games. And he's like, what precisely is the nature of my game? Um, and she, and he's almost like baiting her into being like, be as particular and eccentric and precise as I in the way that you like render this argument. And Vicky Crapes has this beautiful moment of just being like, all of this all around. And it's just like, just break the rules of his like right. syntax game and you can become an equal of sorts. Yep. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then if you crack that like pretty, you know, cipher like hard shell, what you find inside is this like little boy who just wants his mommy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then just be his mom and take care of him when he's sick. And that's really all he wants. Yeah. Um, no. Isn't it? That's what I want. Is it? Definitely. You want somebody why to I like this movie so much. forcibly strip you of your ego and work and all those things. Definitely. <laughs> you truly are the phantom thread. Um, well, buddy, should we rate this? Oh, it's, it's not going to be difficult for me. Well, why don't you take a listen to our brand new rating explainer segment? There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. 
Good Good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. <laughs> or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or awards bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul, leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. Hey, baby, what's They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says... But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. It sounds like it's a good good from you, buddy. Oh, it's a hard good good. I I thought this movie was brilliant. I thought it, it's it's so good to look at. Yeah. You know, it's just the clothes are unbelievable. The style in it is, like, unbelievable. The dresses are amazing. And just seeing, like, the process of, like, the way that this dress is made and how that's juxtaposed with the way you make and, like, unmake, like, a human suit, you know, with your <laughs> ego and your id yeah. is sort of fascinating. And uh, I, I loved it. Uh, so you would recommend a theatrical viewing? I don't know. It would probably hold um, up pretty well in your living room, too. It, it's not a big movie. Right. Um, I think seeing the details of it is easier on, like, a bigger screen. But I don't think... If you saw this on HBO, I think it would be fine. Yeah. Um, it's a good good for me, too. I was perplexed by it. But The Master, which is one of my favorite films... Ever The first time I saw that, I was like, I don't know what to make of this. And then the second time, I was like, oh my god. And so I think what happens with this movie is that it really grows on you. I mean, the the succeeding two days of thinking about it and thinking about their relationship dynamics and thinking about, thinking about what parts of it were like, uh, that's like movie storytelling fucked up and what parts of it were like oh no that exists in all people who are cohabitating and trying to like make a relationship and where sometimes the more exaggerated things stood in for the mundane uh it is fascinating and will weirdly make you look at yourself i think no matter it made me look inward yeah no matter whom you identify with 
Yeah, um, I think it's great and not what you were expecting from like this sort of auteur director. No, we move from here to what? 1993's Last of the Mohicans? Let's do it. Okay. Have you ever read, and this has so little to do with this movie, James Fenimore Cooper's The Last of the Mohicans? I certainly have not. It is boring as sin. Um, I thought you said it had nothing to do with the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even like literary critics in 1840 were like... This guy really describes the countryside for a while. What the hell is this problem? (laughs) Well, Michael Mann shoots the hell out of the countryside in this movie. It's true. Uh, 92, sorry, not 93. Um, But yeah, this is Michael Mann directing uh, a pre-existing, I think, film adaptation of Fenimore Cooper's book. Because Fenimore Cooper's book is not this sort of... um, action, violence-driven melodrama that this movie is. Um, so in the mid 18th century, you have Daniel Day Lewis playing, uh, Nathaniel Poe, AKA Hawkeye, who is, um, I guess the adopted son of, uh, Chingakuk played by Russell Means. And then he has his, uh, his stepbrother Uncas played by Eric Schweig. And they, the movie opens with them just, I don't know, galloping beautifully barefoot through the forest on a hunt. In this shot, Daniel, I want you to run through the woods. (laughs) I'll do it. Um, (laughs) Give me 15 minutes and I'll do it. (laughs) So it's clear that these three are, uh, you know, friends of the American colonists up and down the the countryside of of upstate New York. Meanwhile, the the war is raging with the British trying to... uh, finalize their supremacy in the states while the french to the north have allied uh with the mohawk and other powerful indian nations to get them the heck out of there spoiler alert doesn't work um (laughs) fast forward 300 years doesn't work um but so yeah then they're trying to transport the daughters of an english army colonel uh from one fort to the other and then Maugua, uh, played by Wes Studi, appears and is just like, I'm your guide to the fort. And he is not their guide. Um, he leads them into an ambush and uh, the daughters of the colonel are saved by DDL and company. And then they venture to find the girl's father at a different fort. And it's sort of like this guide through the wilderness. And you know they're going to see Maugua again. Uh, And then you have this other dynamic of the British trying to conscript the colonists into service. And the colonists are not uh, happy about that. The first of many times the American colonists won't be happy with the British. And, um, (laughs) And yeah, it is a slow, gorgeous, I think... Uh, melodrama. Emphasis on slow. You were saying about the soundtrack earlier, like, yeah, they really don't make them like this anymore. And, like, they don't make movies like Last of the Mohicans anymore. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely... Uh, it's it's the last of its kind. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> In am many ways. the last of the last of the Mohicans. Right. Um, but, but maybe, like, for the better, though... For a variety of reasons. For a variety, yeah. You just don't see... We still have prestige movies, but we don't really have prestige romances. As a new land was being carved out of an untamed frontier. This 
dropped in to see how you boys is doing. One man, defiantly courageous, stood his ground. I thought all our colonial scouts were in the militia. I ain't your scout. You sure ain't no damn militia. One woman, fiercely independent, followed her spirit. My father warned me about people like you. DDL here. Weird, right? Well, he's sort of like a... I mean, physically, he's somewhere between... Um, the Daniel Day, the violent Daniel Day Lewis of like, uh, you know, gangs of New York, but then like, you know, sort of like Rambo. Right. In his, like he's, there's literally a scene where he has two muskets like at his side and he takes down two motherfuckers at the same time. Like it's, yeah, it's re- like some of the action in this movie is ridiculous. Sarah fell asleep while we were watching this and then she like woke up and she's like, how was it? And I was like, well, I think it's probably the only movie in which Daniel Day-Lewis double fist muskets. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, his physical presence is remarkable as always. But like Hawkeye, the character doesn't make much of an impression on me. He falls in love right. because it's a romance and he does the right thing. No offense to you guys, but I'm going to go have sex with that woman. <laughs> uh, he essentially says that yeah. like to a bunch of his bros. That's right. Um, and he does the right thing because he's the protagonist. Like the right. characterization in this movie is not very strong, but imagine you talk about, Daniel Day-Lewis being the only one who can do the things that he does. Imagine this movie with like, well, you've, you've, we've seen Kevin Costner and dances with wolves and we've seen, imagine like, God forbid, Mark Wahlberg being cast as like Hawkeye and him like kind of being like ripped and like bumping into trees as he, as he runs, as he runs through the forest. And the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis can match the sort of elegant, um, kinetic ideal of how this movie feels uh native americans move through the forest is remarkable because if he were bad at it people would be like i hate that movie where that white guy pretends that like like apes as a native it's a beautiful movie but watching it is not the most fun well, it's, it's, it's got that classic Michael Mann problem of the fact that he doesn't know how to direct not action. Uh-huh. And this movie doesn't have enough action in it. When it does have um, action, the tension when is it does remarkable. Have, I mean, those like wide shots where you have like 200 extras fighting 200 more extras are like unbelievable. And like there's some shots in it where like, oh shit, they're going to get ambushed right now, aren't they? Wide shot. And of course they do. And it's beautiful. Or like that shot where like it's completely dark, but you just see the explosions behind the trees, like on the other side of the water. That's like an unbelievable shot and an unbelievably well-directed like set piece there. But like when it's, you know, it's like, oh, the the other Indians aren't going to kill us like uh, because we're in a burial ground. Do you want to have a 15 minute scene of us just like cuddling on this hill? (laughs) And it's, it goes on for ages. And, like, there are so many, like, just directorially troublesome moments. Like, don't have a scene where, like, you have to, like, translate into French and then this guy's got to translate into his native language and then we got to go back. Like, give me a break. That's how they set you know? up the sacrifice. It's just so 
boring. These conversations, and they're just like arguing for ages about like, I think we should kill them. No, don't kill us. But I think you should kill them, chief. Like, no, don't kill us, chief. Yeah. But I think you should kill them. Well, don't kill us. But I think you should kill them. Please don't kill us. Like, it's <laughs> there's so much of that. And then finally, like, they're like, give us Duncan. We're going to burn Duncan. Yeah. Can I ask to... So I had seen this movie when I was a little kid. You've never seen it before, right? I've never seen this movie before. I remember Russell Means saying, I'm the last of the Mohicans, being a touching, tragic moment because clearly uh, his son Unka should have been the last of the Mohicans, not this father. Um, no parents should have to bury their child, as King Theoden says. Um, <laughs> but when he says that in this movie... Wasn't a small part of you like, Michael Mann, what are the Mohicans? You haven't told me. Right. It's one of Chance's big uh, problems. I guess it's his Indian tribe. Oh, yeah. I mean, I know that. But, like, I remember there being, like, establishing, like, this is a story about, like, what happened to the Mohicans or, like, how they relate to the Mohawks or the Huron or whomever. But no... He's just like, he just, there's some in- incidental dialogue about like, but it's a great honor for you to kill one of me. He just, and he's like, fuck him. He just says it. And it's like, yeah. Michael, man, I don't know. People just do stuff in this movie. It's not very detail oriented. Well, this movie's both plot heavy and like detail light. Yes. That's a good way to describe it. And it like, every time you're like, huh? It like cuts to a like, a blaring soundtrack <laughs> and like a, like a majestic vista and you're like, Ooh, and you forget that you have no idea like how any of the people in the preceding scene, like know each other. Yeah. Um, it's like, why are they at that log cabin? I know that they liked these people and they're sad that they're dead now, but like, who were they to you? Sure. I feel the same thing about West Studi, who I think gives a very memorable, frightening performance as Malgua. Like I've remembered him my entire life, but then you listen to what Malgua says and he's just like, Malgua give exposition about a time in the past when like, when yeah. white man Malgua tried to do Jaws speech. Yeah. <laughs> Malgua kind of fumble it. <laughs> it was just like, no, they didn't, uh, they didn't give Malgua much. I mean, I know that was an attempt. It's the same thing. It's, it's them attempting to give him like a lot of background and nuance, but the way it's delivered is so ham fisted. Right. Ugh. It's, yeah, it's pretty stereotypical, too. Which is, can I talk about my, like, my one, like, big political problem with this movie? Lay it on me. That at its core, The Last of the Mohegans is a white savior movie. Well, sure. Of course it is. Because, like, there's even that moment at the end where, and I was watching this with my roommate earlier, where... Um, the lady like looks at Daniel Day-Lewis as they're like standing there and he like, like looks back at her and you can almost hear them thinking like we will give the teachings of the Mohicans to our children and then her being like but they're going to be white though <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh huh like just so we're clear they're like they're white yeah it's yeah you can't escape that it's a story right. <laughs> It's a story about a white guy. Um, it's a story where the white guy lives and the brown guy dies. Right. Um, yeah. And that maybe is one of those, 
you know, it's a golden oldie in a lot of ways, but also in its sort of racial depictions, I would say, of Native Americans. It's a, yeah. And when you say golden oldie, that is, um, you know, too slow and like doesn't offer you like a lot of new ideas to chew on. I think you're talking about a good bad. I think that the end of the movie is incredibly striking like truly i think like those cliffs those cliffs should be like third build in the movie they are so like crucial and beautiful um but i just don't think the movie like really does it's really good cast any favors um yeah ddl disappears for like 20 minutes or i'm thinking about think about the look that Wes Studi gives the other Monroe sister as she, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this movie, steps off the cliffs. The look that he gives her is so much more complicated and ambiguous than the movie has made Maugua. And it's just like, it's not, it's it's gathered all these like great talents and like native talents too who should be in more movies, but like, it's just... It's not even giving them like Wind River level complexity. So a good bad for me. Let's talk about, yeah. Well, can we just talk for a second about the ending there where, you know, you have her jump off the cliff. Why do you think she, there was some debate between me and the other people in my apartment watching this movie about why she steps off the cliff. Why do you think she steps off the cliff? Um, It's like one of two reasons. Right. That she's so heartbroken or that her buddy died that she just like can't go on living or the other one being like, she really doesn't want to marry Mugwa. Is she going to marry him? Is that for sure? That's the, that's the thing. It's that he'll take the one girl to be his wife and like learn how to be more sensitive. And then the other one we're going to burn. Oh, um, it can be both. I mean, she just saw the one guy get burned. She saw how this stuff can go, and then she saw her friend die. But, like, also, right. she uh, doesn't want to be Malgua's emotion-learning, like, partner. Right. So, yeah, it's definitely a good bad. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Gangs of New York? G-O-N-Y. Let's do it. Gangs of New York, I think, has a lot in common with the last of the Mohicans, but ends up having some very, like the opposite problems. Yes. A lot of people, I think at this time were this movie just got made. Cause like people were hot. Marty was hot. Leo was hot. Cameron Diaz was hot. Um, DDL, strangely not that hot coming into this movie. He'd taken a long damn time off. Um, From what was his movie before this? Oh, he'd taken five years <laughs> off since The Boxer in 1997. Oh, yeah. The, five years. His one of two, like, movies about the IRA, because of course. That's right. <laughs> it's just boxing. Oh, my God. Of course you've seen The Boxer. I just watched it the other day. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good bad. I'm sure it is. So, this is a movie that begins in, like, I don't know, 1840. 1840 with rival street gangs and the in the five points uh the irish immigrants catholic led by priest liam neeson and the natives the protestants led by uh bill the butcher cutting and daniel day lewis and it starts out with this just the bloodiest (laughs) 
<laughs> street brawl, uh, clubs and knives, no pistols that you can imagine. Um, and Liam and Bill both fight bravely as uh, Liam's son, Amsterdam Valen, looks on. Uh, but Bill gets the better of him and uh, kills him. And then uh, Leo escapes. Yeah. For a while. And then he's sent to like, uh, you know, like a boy's home where he where he grows up. And then the second movie starts. Yeah. Well, I would say the second movie goes to then Leo Amsterdam, like comes back to the old neighborhood to then seek his vengeance on the butcher. And then he doesn't do it. Right. And the second movie begins. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? You're the priest's son, aren't you? His name's Amsterdam. Amsterdam. I'm New York. Everything you see belongs to me. The newsboys and quick thieves and blind tigers here in paradise. Everybody owes, everybody pays. What do you think you're doing? I'm dancing. So why aren't you dancing with him? I'm not in love with him. There's more of us coming off these ships every day. 15,000 Irish a week. Get all of us together and we ain't got a gang. We got an army. Challenge. Challenge accepted. Let's talk about Bill the Butcher. Bill the Butcher is an incredible character. And I imagine that Daniel Day-Lewis, like whatever spider sense he has when he picks out scripts, like it went off the the first chance that uh, the Butcher shows up on screen. Because unlike a lot of the really good acting that populates the first part of his career, the Butcher lines up with like Plainview and Reynolds Woodcock and Abraham Lincoln in that the exterior of the character is unforgettable, but also like the interior analysis you can do on the characters has no basement. Like he's fascinating inside and out Yeah, what he says and what he doesn't say. Yes, absolutely. And it's so the movie wants to make him such a caricature, but he like doesn't allow it to, I would say there's a good tension between him and Scorsese because the movie is a caricature of, you know, it's like a Broadway musical version of the five points gang warfare. It's just so silly and like over the top and blood everywhere kind of thing. And like people yeah. just like standing around, like the stage is essentially the, the that square there and people like right. enter and exit and fight each other and then like go off and like get burned in the face with a hot iron and then come back with like a little brown smudge on their cheek. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it kind of has that funny like Wild West thing where it's just like the guy that you want to kill is 50 yards away, but like not today. Yeah. <laughs> we'll wait until, you know, high noon on the first of next month to yeah. do it. Yeah, in 16 years, I'll be back. Don't you worry. That's right. That's right. Um, But Bill is fascinating to me because so throughout the movie, he's espousing this sort of like, I'm a true American like nativist idea. Like he's just truly, he's wholly anti-immigrant. And yet his actions reveal that that so-called principle is not the driving force behind his character. He just wants to be the central criminal hub of this place. He's happy to work with Irish people if he can take some of their money and impart his own influence. Right. He's just sort of, um, he says one thing and then like acts a very different way, which is fascinating in a villain. Right. 
Well, I think it's, I mean, he's a politician more than he, he's a political figure more than he is, you know, a sort of like villain yeah. in the traditional sense. And Like a prehistoric political figure as you see modern politics developing in the Jim Broadbent, Tammany Hall thing. Right. It's all about power and who has, like he, what he doesn't, what he wants is not to like kick all the immigrants out of the country. He knows it's not going to happen. What he wants is power. And the way to get yeah. power is to appeal to the largest, most excitable group that you can find. And, you know, like happens every hundred years in this country, a large contingent of white people say, that guy's the boss. And, right. Right. you know, and hell, hell breaks loose. And, uh, you know, the minorities tend to end up uh, caught in the wheels of progress, shall we say. Yeah. Oh, um, I don't know. We can talk about it now. That's the thing I hate about this movie is that, like, even... Even the black character who's part of their crew who plays, um, he's in the first, he's like the, one of the main guys in the first, uh, season of the wire. What's that guy's name? Uh, Lawrence Gilliard jr. Um, he is just like, you know, murdered at the end of the movie. And like his friends could give a shit. Like this movie is aware that like black people took the worst of these immigrants who were like, you can't make me serve and fight for abolition. And then, like, they were killed in the South and killed in the North. But, like, the movie doesn't know what to do with that other than to be like, and now back to the white blood feud. (laughs) Right. I think what's so, like, maybe upsetting about this movie is that it's it's hyper faithful to, like, the, like, sort of the truth of the era. But it's not, like, aesthetically true. Aesthetically, it's sort of in that... You know, like I said, like Broadway theatricalness to it. It's not like a it gritty. It has a Sweeney Todd streak. It has a Sweeney Todd streak. It has a Moulin Rouge streak to it. Uh huh. But I would say, in its defense, yes, it is like a very like big swing, and I would say like a technically well made movie. Before we before we go ratings, can we talk about Leo really quick? Sure. Because I think that he is interesting here in comparison to Daniel Day-Lewis. I always find when you put Leo like against someone who's clearly better, Leo's cracks just show. And I think this is like one of the early signs where I was just like, he's going to be in a lot of good movies coming up, but they're not going to be good movies because he's in them. That's an interesting way to put it. I was thinking about like, if you look back at his what he's doing in this era. This is really, let's see, it's the first, it comes before Catch Me If You Can, then The Aviator, then Departed, Blood Diamond, Body of Lies, Revolutionary Road, Shutter Island, Inception. It is a, it is a hot, hot decade. But when I think about all those performances, Catch Me If You Can, I think notwithstanding, it's like, there's something about the when Leo puts on a mask of seriousness that I think he thinks passes for the kind of acting that Daniel Day-Lewis does, but it's not the same. Like when you watch Amsterdam Val and you're like, isn't this man painfully simple? He's a little kid who only seeks revenge because he's watched his dad die. And you see Daniel Day-Lewis inhabit a character with so much more complexity and the same kind of... Leo thinks he's doing the same thing, but he's not. No. That's interesting. He's not even close. 
And I think it's interesting because J.L. Day-Lewis almost has to play two characters, like this guy at like 30 and then this guy at like 50. And then he, Leo only has to play just the, what, 20-year-old kid. Young adult, yeah. Yeah. So it's, but yeah. And you can see it too. I mean, those scenes where where Amsterdam just has to sit and listen to Bill talk in a chair <laughs> are such like Leo in his place scenes. I know the movie knows that, right. but it's just like, and now Leo, you will watch Daniel day Lewis, like make mincemeat of this dialogue. Mm-hmm. There's that particularly good scene where he's describing his dad to him. And of course he doesn't know that Amsterdam is priest's son, but just describing his value system and like how these cultures value violence and he talks about like being beaten by priests the first time. And he goes, he let me live. He wanted me to live in shame. This was a great man. <laughs> and it's like, That's what you think a great man is. <laughs> Someone those... who wants his opponent to live in shame. It's great. But don't you also think like, as we sort of work towards a rating here, yeah. don't you think this movie, like Daniel Day Lewis's performance in this movie makes it sort of watchable for moments just like that? A hundred percent. Yeah. Which is why I will argue, if it's if we can go there, that I weirdly think this movie is bad good. I think there are so many watchable scenes. Like every William Cutting scene I just want to pull up right now. But yeah. I think that the movie as a whole just doesn't make sense. Or like Leo the honestly, the movie the version of this movie I want to watch, Leo's not even in. It's about Daniel Day-Lewis losing to Jim Broadbent and losing to New York. That's what I'd rather watch. Interesting. Yeah, as critical as I've been of it, I do, by our rating systems, think that this is a good, good movie. Okay. But like, I'm sort of conflicted about that because it like certainly has its problems. It's not a perfect so, film, but I think oh, it's, it's technically technically it is a very good movie. And I think there's enough there through like some really great action sequences and yeah. some really sort of fascinating performance that we didn't even talk about, like John C. Riley, um, Cameron Diaz, Brendan Gleeson, Brendan Gleeson, Cameron Diaz. Like they're all like everyone's giving their all, and yeah. that's sort of fascinating to watch. But like ultimately, it's a movie. If you haven't seen, I recommend you seeing. But if you've seen it already, I don't think you need to revisit it. And I don't think many people have. No, because they know it's long. Right. They know it's kind of confused. Right. And those things it's are true con- about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got to see that scene, though. I'm tra- There should be a list of, like, movie rug comes out, like, late like third act movie scenes where you think things are going to be great and then they're not the uh the cleaver in the back that's the minority vote is like one of the great like oh shit like this isn't going to be as easy as we thought scenes i think of all time yeah it's a it's a pretty harrowing scene there are some good this movie has some good moments maybe i was too tough on it but anyway i gave it a good good so here we are Uh, check it out if you haven't seen it it is on where? Amazon. Amazon Prime for free. There you go. And Last Mohicans is on HBO. Phantom Thread is in. I think all uh, these, all three of these movies are worth watching. But let me let's talk about a bigger issue here. Is that isn't DDL kind of like a good bad actor? 
Um, like much like a horror movie is a bad, good genre. I think DDL, like going in, you know, it's going to be like an Oscar bait sort of prestige at the expense of plot, maybe movie. Um, I could be convinced either way. I'm just throwing that there as a, as a question. Well, I feel like I like the question, but I feel like the only place it's going to take us is to an argument over there will be blood. (laughs) We don't have (laughs) to go there. Which I think you think is good, bad, and which I think you're wrong. No, I I think think it's it's good, good. Oh, you do? But I think it's definitely in the style of good, bad. (laughs) It's in the style of good, bad, but it's a sneaky, good, good. It's a sneaky, good, good. But I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with you about in the name of the father or my left foot or the unbearable <laughs> lightness of being or a room with a view. These have to be, to the extent that I've seen those movies, they have to be good, bad. Oh, the Age of Innocence, the only Scorsese movie that I've ever turned off. Oh, I didn't know, even know that was Scorsese. Oh, yeah. It's him doing the other end of the spectrum of Gangs of New York. Oh, why haven't you been talking about it this whole time? I've turned it. I didn't have seen oh, the whole thing. Yes, you turned it off. Um, well, it's it's funny that you say that because I think that his his role selection has left Daniel Day Lewis with a shine in some people's eyes and an unapproachability in other people's. Like I was talking to a friend of mine earlier this week. He was like, "What did you do this weekend?" I'm like, "I'm trying to watch every Daniel Day Lewis movie," and he's like, "To be honest, all I know about that guy is Gangs of New York and Last of the Mohicans, and I've only seen Gangs of New York." And I think to like your ordinary film goer who, uh, hi guys, I hope you're listening. Um, Daniel Day Lewis is like synonymous with talking in rooms and quiet and sure. epic things. I don't know if that impression is correct though. Because there's I don't I can't think of somebody I would rather just watch uh hold completely still or walk out of a room. And he's a strangely like asexual like these all are all pretty much asexual characters I would say, but for some reason just because like Daniel Day-Lewis plays them, you know, they're all like little boys, really. Yeah. He's really good at playing little boys positing as adults and posturing. And what I love is that Phantom Thread seems to be the first movie that like truly knows that and reveals it. Yeah. I mean, he there's like a little boy playing in the woods. He's a little boy playing in the streets or he's a little boy who like got into his mother's sewing kit. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Thanks, pal. Uh, or he wants to dig to China with his oil rig. And, right. Uh, Oh, he just wants to drink your milkshake. (laughs) (laughs) Drainage. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Well, Noah, dare I say I'm finished. Um, Let's uh, get to the end of uh, our DDL episode here. Um, Can I ask one sort of foreshadowing question? Bring it. Uh, It's not really a foreshadowing question. It's like... Is it will I retire after this podcast? Is that what are you going to? I think this is probably you have been my alma and I think I'm out. Right. No, what are you going to ask? Eat my omelet. Um, I was going to ask, do you think the only actor I can think of, of like our generation who's as like physical and bizarre and swings this hard. Yes. Tom Hardy. Oh, that's a good one. But no. Who? I was going to say Adam Driver. Uh, <laughs> like Another a, tall, weird-looking guy with beautiful hair. And, like, 
but we were thinking, I was talking about this with my roommates and they were like, just like imagine like him recast in all of these movies and like him running in the woods with like his weird chest out. It would be amazing. That's such a good point. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like in the method actor school, Daniel Day-Lewis and Adam Driver are hot dogs and Tom Hardy is a hamburger shaped version. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. Um, that's so fascinating. God, I'm very interested in that. Yeah. Will he start taking fewer roles? What's who's going to be our elegant crow magnon? <laughs> <laughs> um, he Adam Driver does have impeccable taste. Yeah. It seems. But no one would ever foist uh, like a Star Wars franchise on Daniel Day-Lewis, though. No, I'm not interested in that, sir. But Adam Driver is, again, one of these people who's only picked like good movies. Yeah. God, that's such a good point. I'm glad you leave us there. Yeah. So, Chance, tell us where people can hear us, even though they're already currently hearing us. You can always find past episodes at berealpodcast.com. Or if you are just like, I don't want to see a website, I guess you can go to Apple Podcasts on your phone or Stitcher or Overcast if you get your shows on some other app. Uh, We always encourage you to please uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts in particular. Uh, Five stars, if you don't mind. Um, Unless you don't think we're that good. In which case, you could email us, but maybe don't just say so out in the open. This is bad. Two stars. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess if you used our rating system to say that we were mediocre, I would forgive it. I think we're um, a soft good bad at worst. <laughs> or soft uh, bad depend- good at worst. Depends how close we're getting to the three-hour mark. Uh, Twitter and Facebook. Give us a follow. Keep up with us there. There's some. There's funny stuff. Sometimes we ask you, like, what movies do you want us to watch? It's a good way to stay in touch. We've never listened, but we're still asking. No, I listen. I listen. Anyway, buddy. Pal. <laughs> Can I do my Lincoln impression as the sign-off? I would love if you did that. Buzzard's guts, man. We need to end this podcast now. 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 <laughs> All right, bye.